0: Paul's letter to the Philippian church. If you know the New Testament history recorded in the book of Acts, you know that it ends with Paul in the great city of Rome, the capital of the empire, but he is in chains as he awaits his time in court before Caesar. He has made use of his Roman citizenship and appealed to Caesar to resolve a conflict that he had with his opponents back in Jerusalem. And while he's there, spending two years waiting for his day in court, this church from some 800 or so miles away in Philippi that he founded ten years earlier, keeps track of Paul, follows his travels as partners in the gospel, and sends him a monetary gift and a gift of help in the form of one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus. And Paul writes this letter to encourage them, thank them for their gift, and return Epaphroditus to them. We pick up the... uh, in chapter 2 verse 12 it's found on page 1175 in the pew bible <clears throat> and i think i've mentioned before that um it was very unlikely that the letter would have been treated piece by piece in its original form for its original audience. They were largely likely illiterate people, and uh, as they gathered for worship, the letter in its entirety would have been read to them. And certainly Paul writes a very tightly woven letter that isn't really designed to be broken up into pieces. So the verses we're going to look at today... Are really part of a section that begins in the first chapter, verse 21, after Paul has updated them on his own condition, how he feels about his circumstances there being uh, basically a prisoner for two years, and uh, basically assuring them that even though there is a possibility that he will be condemned to death, he's okay, he's doing well. He's being used of the Lord, even in chains, among the, uh, the members of Caesar's own praetorian guard. Uh, he's not discouraged by reports that some of his opponents in church are busy trying to seize control in his absence. He's just encouraged that the gospel is being preached. And he's not afraid to die, because if living is Christ, then dying is gain because he will be more immediately in the presence of the Lord. So, what he's doing in verse 27, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 1, is redirecting the focus of the Philippians from their concern for him, which has been expressed in their gifts, which is all really good, that they may focus on their own living for God, their own Uh, conforming their lives as citizens of God's kingdom to the good news of the gospel. So behind the whole letter is this sense that Paul and the Philippians share in this amazing, powerful endowment called the good news that flips over the reality of life in this world, in this dog-eat-dog world, and you can put yourself in modern America or you can put yourself in ancient Philippi, this privileged city, a colony of the city of Rome, where citizenship was either something that was proudly held on to or eagerly sought because it was the possession of so few and carried such wonderful privileges, where rank and standing compared to your fellow people, was the big game and achieving higher status was what it was all about. Trying to grasp and claw your way to gather together a life worth living before it was all over. And here, everything's flipped over by this gift of the Gospel. What we have in Jesus Christ is reconciliation with God, eternal life, and thus the freedom... To transcend the 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 uh, the way the world lives, what the Gentiles chase after and serve others as Christ has served, and so look forward to the reward that lasts that is given by God, so Paul has <coughs> um, taught this, told them to focus on conforming their life to the gospel, and then, like any good teacher, has given practical examples, well, he's going to give two more examples. He's going to talk about how Timothy is a good example, how Epaphroditus, their own, is a good example. But he starts with what we looked at two weeks ago, in the first part of chapter 2, with the greatest example of all, the uh, life of Jesus, and how Jesus shows us how to live, not just in the way he lived on this earth, but in the very fact that he came to this earth. The attitude that he must have had that prompted him to humble himself and become one of us and obey the Father's will to achieve our salvation, even when it cost him his own life, even when he conformed his life to the status, the non-status of a slave, where he died the death of a slave, the ignominious death of crucifixion. Therefore, God highly exalted him. So the Philippians, so you and so I are encouraged to live out this wonderful, amazing endowment of the gospel and all the freedom that it gives us to live after Christ. And what will happen? What will happen when we live out the gospel that we've been given? Well, it, it can change the world. Big words. But that's what Paul tells us. Do you believe it? Let's get to the text this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, and remember, he's just either written or quoted that jewel of the letter, that what's, what uh, commentators often call the Christ hymn, where it becomes poetic in its description of Christ equal with God, humbling himself all the way to death, and then being exalted with a name above every name. So then... Tying these verses into the context. My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if you want to give the syntax the way that Paul has in the Greek, that way that we're to work out our, our salvation is given first place. With fear and trembling work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will become, it's a better translation, you will become blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of your service and faith, sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all, you too, Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The Word of God. Let's seek his help as we reflect on it together. Lord God, accompany the reading and the reflection of your Word with the light and power of your Spirit, that all of its potential might be met in us, and that we would heed your call, that we would see you at work in us, and that that would prompt us to lay hold of that for which you laid hold of us. What an honor and privilege it is to be reminded that we are your children, for that is the privilege that belongs really to the one and only begotten Son of God himself. But because of his humility, we are embraced in your family. So, O Lord, draw us to a clearer reflection of our parentage as we meditate on your word and live it out in our lives. And We ask this through Jesus' name. Amen. So, going back to chapter 1, verse 27, we see similar words as what he rhetorically, what Paul rhetorically does here in this passage is uh, is called in ancient rhetoric the, the proposal or the proposition, the propositio, where he is uh, giving his audience the behavior that they are, the way they are to live their lives. It's the whole point of the rhetoric, the whole point of bringing up the example that he does, the whole point of pleading the way he does, is how it should affect their lives. This is the way it should. So, in verse 27, he put it this way, only live as citizens in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. Here in verse 12 in chapter 2, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Different words, but really he's driving home the same point. So he's given us the example of Christ and he returns then to the imperatives. He goes from the indicatives to tell us what Jesus has done to tell us how we respond now. Since the same God that humbled himself in Jesus Christ is the one who is at work in us. So when he says, have that same attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus, it's because of all that you've received in the Gospel. All the consolation, all the comfort, all the encouragement that you received in the Gospel has facilitated the ability for that very same attitude to grip hold of and direct the course of your life. So keep working it out. My beloved... Well, Paul appeals to them, gives them this central imperative, work out your salvation with encouragement in what he calls them, his beloved, and the acknowledgement that he makes of how they are doing. He's just said that Jesus was obedient to the point of death. And he tells the Philippians, you're obedient too. Not just when I'm around to watch you, but even more so in my absence. And Paul knows that because they sent Epaphroditus, they sent a gift, and Epaphroditus could tell them what's going on. So, he acknowledges the sincerity of their faith. He's not telling them to become obedient because they're disobedient. He's saying, you're obedient, so keep going all the more. Press on. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, my emphasis in putting this text back in its larger context in the flow of Paul's argument Is based on what this verse is capable of doing, I think, when we isolate it from its context. When you read this in isolation of the rest of the letter, how does it make you feel? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Doesn't that feel heavy? Does it feel encouraging or discouraging? To me, it feels like, boy, a big load has been dumped on me and it's my responsibility to make sure that I prove I'm saved and I should do so scared because if I don't, who knows what God's going to do to me. But I want you to notice where Paul's words end up in this explosion of joy sharing his joy with them and telling them to share their joy with him. So we must be misreading this famous and important verse if we find it to be a thud, a clunk of heavy discouragement rather than the motivation that it provides if we put it back in its context. I want you to notice something. That word work, of course, it's the day of rest, and hopefully you're off work and you are enjoying some recuperation time. And maybe you've got that kind of job where you can't wait to get back to it tomorrow, or maybe the thought of Monday morning is dreadful to you. I don't know. (laughs) Hopefully the former and not the latter. But the idea when you're in church on your day of rest, remembering Jesus and what He has done for you, and then you are given this this word, this imperative work, Get to work. Well, it's almost tiring thinking about it, and then you add the fear and trembling on in addition to that. But I want you to notice that it is not work towards your salvation or work for your salvation. But the wording is so incredibly important. Work out your own salvation. In other words, the basis of your work is not something that you are reaching to attain to, but something that you have already received. You have, you possess salvation. That's that endowment that I've been talking about. That's why why earlier when he says it in different words in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, be citizens worthy of or suited to, appropriate to, the good news of Christ. It's the very same thing we're talking about. You've been saved. That's what Paul is saying to them. You have been rescued. It is your possession. Your own salvation. That's the way it reads in the Greek. The salvation that you possess. That gift of God. And he's just talked about how Jesus acquired it for you. Through His own suffering and through His death. In other words, He's not telling you to work your way afraid of God's judgment to acquire God's favor by what you do. He's saying God has given you His favor. He has rescued you from your own sins. He has saved you from hell. He has given you an eternity in heaven that can't be taken away from you. It's your own salvation. You possess it. Now, work out what God has worked in you. That's what He's saying. Unpack the gift. Unwrap the present. Plug it in. See all that it can do. See how it affects your lives. See how it affects your relationships. See what the good news of Jesus can do in the most discouraging circumstances like Paul himself is in there, chained to a Praetorian guard for two years. See what the Gospel, that good news of Almighty God reaching down into a tomb and bringing life out of death, can do for you in every area of life. Don't leave that amazing, powerful gift wrapped up and shelved in your closet. Work it out. God has worked it in you. He has saved you. Now, see how it fits. See how that good news transforms. Beginning with your attitude. Everything in your life. That's what He's saying with fear and trembling? Well, it's interesting that Paul uses the precise same phrase elsewhere in his writing, <coughs> this combination of terms, and the fact that he uses it, the identical phrase fear and trembling in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians helps us to see what he means by this pair When he puts it together in this precise way. So in 1 Corinthians, and, uh, you know, if you want to check it out now or later, it's 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, but I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to give you the context. You remember when Paul entered, maybe you don't remember, maybe you've never heard of it before, but Paul enters this great cosmopolitan City, This proud city near Athens that was bustling with commerce and very international and multicultural and so proud, so wealthy, and so full of pompous people who were seeking wisdom, who were uh, looking for all different kinds of things. And Paul comes, this humble man, uh, traditionally considered short in stature, maybe a little nearsighted, he comes into town. The biggest city that he's been in so far. And it's a wild city. It's a crazy city. It all goes down in Corinth. And he says, I came there, not with eloquence, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I came there not determined to persuade you and sell you something else like so many people came to Corinth. Trying to gain new customers for their self help technique. I came determined to preach nothing but Christ crucified. He says, This I came to you in fear and trembling. What does he mean? He came not scared of the city. but divested in any sort of cockiness or reliance on his own eloquence, on his own human abilities, focused exclusively on this offensive message of Christ crucified, with an awareness of what God can do through that message. This phrase, fear and trembling, in other words, is a synonym for humility that acknowledges that God is at work. This is the posture of a person who maybe at one time was strutting about trusting in his own confidence, in his own abilities, and all of the sort of uh, things that he's accumulated that speak of his own power. And he's been humbled as Paul was, this Pharisee with all of his credentials, blinded on the road to Damascus, humbled, humbled, humbled to hear not only Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? But then to hear Jesus saying, you will be my apostle to the Gentiles. I'm going to work through you, Paul. His name used to be Saul, but now it's Paul, little man. And then in 2 Corinthians, (coughs) and uh, (coughs) sorry, my throat is really messed up. 2 Corinthians 7.15. Here Paul is, the context is that uh, he sent a letter, a really harsh letter, to the Corinthians because this church has all kinds of problems and uh, it's a divided church and that's mostly based on pride and rivalry and a party spirit uh, where one group looks down on another. And so uh, he rebukes them and he doesn't hold back. And then he sends them Titus to see how they're doing and how they've responded to his rebuke. And then Paul is waiting over in Ephesus for Titus to come back. And he's sweating, and he's checking his watch, and he's what's what's going to happen? He's told Titus, you know, I believe in these Corinthians in the sense that I, I believe they really are. They're messed up, but they are the real deal. They are Christians. And so no matter how sinful they have been, no matter how far they've gone astray, I believe that they will respond positively to my letter of rebuke. But Paul spoke very, very harsh words. They were needed. And he's hoping and praying that the natural response to rebuke, that human pride that establishes a wall that prevents the medicine of the rebuke from doing its work in, in killing the, the, the bacteria that is infecting the heart. He's praying that that wall is not up. And then Titus comes back and he writes in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, how delighted he was that his confidence in the Corinthians was proved right and that when they received Titus as the emissary of Paul, they received him with fear and trembling, Paul writes. In other words, they were humbled by Paul's letter of rebuke. And when Paul's representative came, they received him with humility. They got over themselves. They recognized that God was at work through the rebuke that Paul had written. So what does Paul mean when he says, remember Philippi, remember this city, this privileged Roman colony, when he says to them, here's what you've got to do, my beloved, who obey even in my absence, you've got to work out that salvation of yours with fear and trembling. And it takes the emphatic position in the sentence with fear and trembling, with humility. Well, put it in its context, he's just given us the example of Christ. That attitude of humility, though equal with God, not an attitude of self loathing or low self esteem. He is equal with God. He has that rank. But choosing humility, he emptied himself. Took the form of a servant, a slave. Was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you too, you who have been obedient, work out your salvation in the spirit of humility with fear and trembling. And again, it's a humility... That is not just, uh, you know, the opposite of pride, but it's a humility that comes from an acknowledgement that God is at work here. That it is not my power and strength. So that leads to the next thing, which is the really incentive of the command. You unpack all the potential, the power, of this good news that you've been given, this salvation that has been granted to you that you possess now. It is your gift. It is your endowment. Now, unpack all of its potentiality in your attitude and in every area of your life and all of your relationships with this confidence, with this incentive that God has underwritten the entire project. You hear that? So those important little uh <coughs> what are they called Susan I'm losing all my vocabulary here along with my throat power but through for behind what are they prepositions <laughs> Lauralee 1 Susan 0 <laughs> Susan's retired <laughs> Yeah, don't miss the prepositions. Verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you. Now, don't miss that, right? When you you hear the command, Work out your salvation. With fear and trembling, work out your salvation, for it is God who works. It is God who is at work in you very same God who incarnated, embodied Himself in the humility of Jesus Christ now incarnates and embodies Himself in Christ's people in your life, working in you to do what? Both to will and to work according to His good will or His good pleasure. Now that's all you need. If you've got the desire to do something and the ability to do it, What stands in the way? Absolutely nothing. That's all you need. That's the recipe. You can have the desire to do something, but not the ability, and it won't get done. You can have the ability to do something, but you don't want to do it. It won't get done. But if you have the desire, the will, and the means, the ability, it'll happen. That's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. This will happen because you've got the will and the power. Why? Because God supplies these things. He's underwritten the whole project. And that's not a disincentive. That's not a call to passivity. That is not a, well, let's just let go and let God not do anything and see what happens. It is an incentive to keep on going. Because He will supply the will as you do it, and He will supply the ability as you do it to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He has underwritten it. So the imperative, along with the encouragement, the incentive, the obstacles. And here's an allusion (coughs) in verses 14 and 15, with words and almost quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, referring to the Israelites in the wilderness. And I, I don't know if that was picked up on by the Philippians, but it's, it's just part of the way that Paul thinks and writes. He is saturated in the Old Testament and the, in the history of his own people, even though he's writing here to a predominantly Gentile uh, readership, that he's thinking of what stands in the way of this happening. And he's thinking of the Israelites in the wilderness. And they had received this amazing gift too, right? They were set free. They were saved from Egypt. They were set free from the house of bondage. They were liberated. They crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and it swallowed up the pursuing soldiers of Pharaoh's army. And there they were, with the presence of God, a pillar of, of a cloudy pillar by day, a pillar of fire by night, leading them to the promised land. And what did they do? They died in the desert, grumbling and disputing. Moses calls them a wicked and perverse. Generation in Deuteronomy. So here is the obstacle. Here's what's going to stand in the way. So it's good to know what's in the way so you can get rid of it, right? Grumbling or complaining. I don't I don't know if this is worth spending time on. Anyone here grumble or complain? If you do, just stand up and we'll we'll try to help you out. <coughs> Oh, this is, this is a pointed word to me. Grumbling and complaining. Do everything without it. Notice that command. Do all things. What's he talking about? Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God at work in you to will and to work. Do all those things. And they won't be done if you are grumbling and disputing. Let's keep going so that you will become blameless and pure. There are some wonderful results here if we work out our salvation and we uh, get rid of that obstacle of complaining, of focusing on what we perceive to be wrong. And believe me, Paul says, "...it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ both to believe and to suffer." Earlier on, if you recognize that, you've been following along and retaining, then you remember that's the gift. So Paul's doing it there in, in Rome, chained to a Praetorian guard. The Philippians are doing it there in this proud, arrogant city in which they face a great deal of hostility. They are suffering, but they are suffering with faith. It, they, part of the gift is believing the gift. That's central, right? And part of that faith is believing that the suffering actually produces good things. There's something that's going to result from all of this. And we go back to Jesus, right? Obedient all the way to death. Well, what was the point of that if you think that death is the end? No, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name. That's not the end of the poem. Obedient to death. That's a downer, but no, not Jesus. It's transformed when God honors those who trust in Him and even suffer in that faith as He did Jesus. So here Paul finishes off <coughs> this proposition, this proposal, <coughs> this type of behavior and lifestyle that he is enjoining on the, on his readership by telling them all that will result when we do this, when we work out our salvation with this humility, fear, and trembling, when we remove the the grumbling and complaining and, and fighting, all that will result... well, at least four results. You will more clearly resemble your parentage. Do everything without grumbling and complaining... Disputing, verse 14, so that you will become blameless and innocent or pure children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You are children of God. But Is that evident? You know, a child grows up in some way to be like his or her parents. And some children grow up saying, I don't want to be my father or I don't want to be my mother. And lo and behold, they are their father and mother, right? Well, you've got a new father in heaven and you want to be like him. And you've been given sonship. You've been given the spirit of the son in you. You've given, been given the same attitude that his son had, with the promise of the same honor that his son received. <clears throat> and so you put aside grumbling and complaining, which will obscure your parentage in God, and you work out your salvation with fear and trembling in the likeness of Christ in his humility, and lo and behold, more purely, more simply, less contaminated you are going to display who your father is. What's behind it? So, you will more clearly resemble your parentage and that leads to the witness that you are going to present to the world. Now, again, He's not telling us new things. He's not coming up with new ideas. He's unpacking everything that He's already begun and is centered in the example of Christ. So, Christ's obedience all the way to death, even death on the cross, and therefore God highly exalted Him and gave a name that is above every name, not just to the honor of Christ, but look at the results that come from the exaltation of Christ. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to glory, the glory of God the Father. And wow, what's happened is that the whole universe has been swept up into the praise of God because of Jesus' obedience. Because of Jesus' attitude. And uh, Paul says the very same thing is going to happen with you. And you are in this dark world, or this crooked and perverse generation. You're going to shine like stars. Now, Bob talked a little bit about stars. In the ancient world, there was a lot less light pollution. So maybe you've spent some time out in the country where on a clear night, there it is, the Milky Way. All the constellations. Now in the ancient low-tech world, that was the high technology. It was the firmament. It was the stars that told you the season. It was the stars that pointed your direction. And you mapped out your life. You could avoid the heat of the day and travel at night, even on the seas, by looking at the stars. They pointed your way, even in darkness. And Paul says, that's you. Weaving the Philippians, bringing us here in Syracuse into that wonderful theme when God said to Abraham, look up at the stars, try to count them. That's how your descendants are going to be. That countless. And what a beautiful metaphor to unpack here to the point where we get told that you know, if you remove the obscuring clouds at night, you can 't see the, the, the stars, or you can see, you turn off the light pollution in the city of grumbling and disputing, and there you are shining like stars, and what does that mean? It means simply by being who you are, by living a life of salvation or by living a citizenship. That is conformed to the good news. Just by the way you live your life. Not because you're trying to bash someone else and tell them what to do, but just being who you are. And decluttering the, the, the complaining that takes root in your heart and the disputing that is in our relationships. You you declutter all of that and you just, you're a child of God. And if anyone bothers looking up at the sky, they're going to see you and they're going to get some sense of direction now in their stumbling life. From you. Just like Jesus. Whose exaltation brought every knee down. Moved every tongue to confess. You are going to be luminaries in a crooked, <coughs> perverse, as those are synonyms, you know. A world that's always bending and turning the wrong way. And you are going to be a guide. Holding fast the word of life. Again, terminology for the same stuff. It's the gospel of the good news of Christ that you conform your life to. Your, sal- your own salvation that you're working out with fear and trembling. The word of life. You hold on. Well, this is a, a word that's a verb that's capable of being read in two ways. Holding fast or embracing tightly or holding forth, lifting up. And it could very well be that Paul has both ways of reading it in mind here, that by clutching to, as our own guide, the Word of Life, we too become a luminary by holding up the Word of Life as we've internalized it, as we're living it out in our behavior, our attitudes, our relationships. Uh, quickly, two more um, results from working out our salvation in this way. You honor the labor of those who went before. Paul says, (coughs) and he's probably referring here to the the method of worship being conducted in Philippi among the pagan temples that the people would have been so familiar with. But if, if they are a sacrifice before God and he's like wine being poured over it, if his blood is being spilled and he's going to be condemned to death, which is a very real possibility, It'll all have been worthwhile if it actually resulted in something. If all that Paul had invested there, being imprisoned in Philippi ten years earlier, being beaten, making all the sacrifices and sufferings that he did, then it would be great. And he will just be complete in his joys. He said, make my joy complete. And you should be complete in your joy. Because when you do this, when you work out your salvation, when the Christian gospel is not just, well, I've got to remember to believe in these things, but you've internalized it and it it shows up in your attitude. When you're tempted to complain. When you find yourself in a dispute. And then you think, well, how does one live out the good news in these relationships, in these circumstances? What does it mean? believe the good news when there's that practical transformation what paul is saying is i will know that i haven't toiled i haven't done all of this for nothing and so it's an honor to those who have sacrificed and labored in giving you the gospel when it takes hold of your life and transforms the direction of your life it's a testimony to the world it's an honor to the church And it is the fullness of joy. And that's the the note he ends with. Now, I want you to think of futile labor like Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill and it just falling, rolling back down as he's about to reach the top. That sort of metaphor for human life goes back to Greek mythology, right? We can relate to it. The drudgery of the meaningless of life. Uh, Another day, another dollar, deeper in debt. You know, where does it get me? Um, that kind of stuff. Well, go back to Moses and his generation. Think all that Moses went through. With the grumbling and murmuring and complaining and disputing people who rebelled against him, who wanted to chuck the salvation they received and go back to Egypt because they, they missed garlic. and all the weary times that Moses had over the course of 40 years taking a journey that could have taken a few weeks to the promised land but for the lack of faith watching by the thousands the tens of thousands the hundreds of thousands all the people of his generation die in the wilderness what a waste now how do you feel about your job The investment that you've put into your children, and your family, or whatever you've done—the the heart that you've poured out into the work in the church, the outreach, the neighborhood, or whatever relationship—well, was uh, was Moses' work in vain? Well, there were two guys: it was Joshua and Caleb. And that made all the difference, right? That's why we're standing, that's why we're here today talking about what we're talking about. Because uh, God doesn't need you to do a lot of razzmatazzi work with big figures to back up and justify your existence. He will honor your faithfulness. So be the Joshua and Caleb, I guess is what I'm saying, as opposed to the hundreds of thousands of others who died in the wilderness be the joshua and caleb who internalize and are transformed by and work out in your life what god has endowed you with this salvation that you own and that will complete that will complete the picture of joy let's pray father in heaven thank you for these words of encouragement, Lord, and uh, far from being discouraged, Lord, it causes us to tremble to think that the God who spoke the universe in, in, into being <clears throat> and sustains it, the, the one who keeps the stars in their place and causes the planets to orbit focuses his energy on working in our hearts. Giving us the desire to live for Jesus. Giving us the ability in those circumstances of suffering, in those difficult relationships, to live out that that salvation. Knowing that the result will be as powerful as a star burning in the distant outer space and the guidance that it will give to others and the joy that it brings to its maker. From you, through you, to you are all things, Lord. To to you be all the glory. We give it to you.